Reading this morning from John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid, his, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was, who knew who was to betray him. And was why he said, not all of you are clean. Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to come and to worship you. Uh, we worship you, Lord, uh, in our song, in our prayers, and, and in the preaching of the word and in our giving. Lord, we just thank you so much for uh, the opportunity you give us each week to come together and to worship you together in unity as your people. And so we thank you and ask you to bless this day and the, the uh, exposition of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. <clears throat> Very glad you all made it this morning. A little bit of a foggy and slippery day out there. But we're glad you're here. number of folks uh, not here, I've, just a lot of folks I've already heard that are sick today. And so I uh, want to remember them in our prayers. We've been studying John's gospel now for a long time. And uh, we've seen the Lord's work of his ministry publicly in the first 12 chapters. And now we see his private ministry to his disciples, to those whom he called and chose to follow him. And such valuable lessons that we have in these chapters from 13 all the way through to the very end, but particularly through uh, chapter 19. The overarching theme of John's gospel is that of self-sacrificing love shown in the life of the Savior. If there was ever anyone who displayed the love of God perfectly, it was the Lord Jesus. This love is about to be displayed through a selfless act of our Lord as He washes His disciples' feet. Jesus' whole life has been one of service to others. Many times at the expense of his, own, uh, of, his, of his own ability to keep going, many times we find that he was completely exhausted and had to depart by him, be by himself uh, to be with his father. But now that his public ministry is over, He must teach his disciples what this love that he himself uh, is 
the subject of looks like. He must tell that he must relate to them what what the love of God looks like in their lives to each other. And this is a very important thing because it is that love that Christians have one for another, even worldwide, that tells the world who we are. Jesus knew that his Father had given everything into his hands on this earth. This was a fulfillment of the prophecy that was made in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 8, which says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That's Jesus. That's the Son of God, the one who owns it all, the one who has been given all by the Father. Now this saying, this is saying that Jesus, in his sovereignty, knew all that was about to take place in his life. And that is as it should be. He knows that nothing is going awry. It's not going off the tracks. It is happening exactly as it was planned by God the Father in the very beginning. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that the Jewish leaders would condemn him. He knew that his disciples would desert him and that Peter would deny him. He knew all these things. And still he displayed a heart, the heart of a servant, and showered his love upon his disciples. It's an amazing thing. If we knew ahead of time what people were going to do with regard to ourselves, how would we react toward them? All the hurts, all the disappointments, all the, the tragedies. And yet Jesus knew all these things and loved his disciples anyway, even to the very end. You know, he knows that about us now, too. He knows what's coming in our lives. He knows the times we will fail him. He knows the times that we will not live up to our calling to walk with him. And yet, he loves us in spite of those things. It is one thing for people to love us who really don't know us. It is altogether a different thing for someone to know all of our wicked thoughts, for someone to know all of our, our deeds, our inner motivations, and st- still love us to the uttermost. This is the way God loves us, for He knows, He knows our deeper self, our heart, better than we do. It's a great comfort to know that the Lord's love never changes. That regardless of our performance or devotion to Him, He loves us in spite of that. Now in this particular, at this particular time, the supper had begun and no one's feet had been washed. No one had offered to do the lowly task of washing anyone's feet because there was no servant there, there was no slave there to carry out this event. The water pitcher, the basin, and the towel were in clear sight, and yet none of them moved to do the task that would have always been done at such a dinner. The custom in the, of the days, when you were going to a dinner, and there were going to be other people there, you would, you would take a bath, and you would bathe before you went to dinner, but taking a bath in those days was a, was a bit of an ordeal. Uh, they didn't have bathtubs or stand-up 
showers. Uh, uh, you would have to go down to the river or to a body of water somewhere and take a bath. And you would come, you would come back clean. The only problem was when you walked back, your feet would get very dirty. We've all seen and experienced the feet of little children during the summertime when they come in and they've been playing outside and they're running around barefooted and their feet are black and grimy. I can remember my mother saying to me, don't you come into this house with those feet like that. And so they would come back, but as they walked back and they went to the dinner, their feet would get dirty. This, had, this the disciples would have probably done. This was the custom of the day. They would, have, they would have bathed, and then they would have come to the dinner. But as they came, they came with dirty feet. The disciples are arguing among themselves. Luke tells us in chapter 22 about which one would be the greatest. Could it be that perhaps the washing of the feet prompted their arguing? Who's going to wash our feet? I'm not washing anybody's feet. That's the lowest of the low. I'm going to be greater than that. We're not told. But they were arguing over who would be great and who wouldn't. A clear sign that they did not yet understand that their place individually was one of being a servant to each other, to the others. Each one. That tells me that as we gather, as we are part of God's, of Christ's church, we are servants one to another. We are, we are to act towards one another as though we were slaves to, other, to the, the other. This, as someone has said, was a silent accusation against these men. And still, no one moved. No one moved. It was about this time that Jesus stood up took off his outer garments, that would be his robe and his tunic. We would say that he had stripped down to his underwear. He took the, the, the preparations of the water, the bowl, poured the water in, wrapped the towel around him, tied it around him, and began to wash his disciples' feet. The king is now the lowly slave doing the menial task that no one else wanted to do. He is the servant king, which makes him greater still. Now, as the Lord was going from disciple to disciple, washing their feet, there were no reactions from any of them. No one said anything. We have no record that anyone said anything. Probably they were thinking all kinds of things, but keeping their thoughts to themselves. Maybe they felt shame that Jesus would end up doing this and not one of them. Maybe they were confused about there being no slave or attendant to wash the feet. Maybe they, their thoughts were running from through their minds. We're not told what thoughts they thought. The other side of this issue is that Jesus knew what was going on in their minds. He knew what they were thinking. Their thoughts of embarrassment or confusion. And so he came to Peter. Peter was always the impetuous, impulsive, and outspoken one. He was the one who opened his mouth generally when everyone else was silent. 
Could it be that Peter was the last one that the Lord actually came to in the washing of the feet? Everyone else was silent. Peter opened his mouth. It is here that Peter does what many may see as a humble, a humble thing, a good thing. He declines. He declines. He doesn't want the Lord to stoop to this lowly place and wash his feet. The Lord has already washed the feet of the other disciples. And Peter is watching this whole thing unfold. Maybe it is this point that Peter is thinking, What is the Lord doing? I should be washing his feet, not him washing mine. And so... There is a very, very noticeable contrast, maybe in Peter's mind, maybe in the others as well. Here is the pure, spotless Lord of glory on the one hand, and here is Peter's dirty, filthy feet on the other. I want you to notice the words, you and my. He says, He says uh, in verse uh, verse 6, Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? You see the words you and my in that verse? They, they have the word, they, they are separated by the word wash in almost all English translations. But in the Greek, they are side by side. To show the contrast between Jesus as the sinless Lord and Peter who has dirty feet. Which is a picture here of indwelling sin. Peter's response indicates that he was shocked at what Jesus is about to do to him. So in response, Peter says, literally, this is the way it is in the the original text. Peter said, Lord, do you my feet wash? In other words, is it for you to wash my feet? He whom Peter knelt before on the banks of Galilee was now kneeling before Peter as the one who served. What an awkward and even embarrassing moment this must have been for Peter and all the other disciples as well. Though none of them seemed to say anything except for Peter. They may have felt chastened and rebuked by the sight of the Lord washing and kneeling before them, washing their feet. Peter is just being open about what everyone else must be thinking. Jesus tried to explain to Peter that what he was about to do will be understood later when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them. It was only after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven that Peter and the other disciples would fully understand what Jesus had done to them. And why? Now the other part of this foot washing was to show what Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Which says, The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served. He was the King, but He didn't come to establish a throne. He came to give His life as a ransom for others. Peter was was the most impulsive and rash 
member of the twelve. It seems we find Peter speaking up and acting when others wouldn't. He often spoke out of a lack of understanding. An example of this is found in Matthew chapter 16. If you'll turn there with me. Matthew 16. And notice, this in this chapter, Jesus has just warned his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in verse 13, they were, as they were walking together, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, impulsive Simon, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Wow, that's a great answer because that's the right answer. Peter didn't get that on his own because Jesus said, yeah, you've, you've said it right, Peter. But you didn't get that on your own. It was given to you from heaven. And so then he goes on. He talks about the building of his church and how that he's going to place upon uh, Peter the, the, as the leader of the twelve. And then we come to verses 21 and 22. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus is teaching them uh, that he is going to die. And this is how he's going to die. At the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jerusalem. Verse 22 And Peter took him aside. He pulled him aside and rebuked him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Wow. This shall never happen to you. And so... Peter, when he says this, he uses a double negative. In the the original Greek, a double negative is used to speak of something that could never possibly ever happen. It's just not possible. And that's what Peter's saying here. He, He uses this double negative to emphatically say that this would be something that could not ever possibly happen to Jesus. And that's why Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Wow, how'd you like to have that said to you by the Lord? Get behind me, Satan. You're not interested in the things from heaven. You're only interested in the things on earth and from men. But Peter Peter did finally understand what Jesus was talking about. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 1, 2, and 3. Respectively, Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed, you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's never going to happen to you, Lord. You're never going to hang on a cross. You're never going to bleed out your life's blood. That'll never happen. But Peter writes that it did happen. 
In chapter 2, verse 24, he says, He bore our sins in His body on the tree. In chapter 3, verse 18, he says, He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, however, again in verse 8, Peter spoke, presumptuously with the same kind of double negative that he used in chapter 16 in telling Jesus that he would never, ever, it can never happen that you will wash my feet. Not a chance. Hmm. Since when does a, does a servant get to tell their master what to do and what not to do. Now, let's not be too hard on Peter because I think about this and I think, what would I, what would I do if, if the God of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, were to kneel down before me and want to wash my feet? What would I think? What would I do? How would I react? I'm not sure I wouldn't withdraw like Peter was thinking. Oh no. I can't Lord, I can't let you do this. You're too high. You're too you're too glorious. You're too pure to even touch my nasty feet. And yet that is just what is needed. We need Jesus to wash our feet. How often we shy away from the deeper things that the Holy Spirit deals with in the depths of our hearts. We don't want to approach those things. They're too dirty. They're too, they're too uh, unmentionable. And yet Jesus reaches in there to wash and to cleanse. And we, we many times think, no. Peter's mind is... Only what's happening now at the moment. He's not thinking about the whole of Jesus' humiliation. This was part of it. That Jesus would stoop to wash His disciples' feet. The foot washing was only a part of this humiliation. The main thing that Peter didn't get in this event was that of a disciple telling his Lord what to do or what not to do. That just doesn't happen. Or it shouldn't. We see Peter doing this again in Acts chapter 10. He's asleep asleep on the roof, roof of the house. In his dream, a great sheet comes down, has all manner of crawling animals and beasts in it, and he hears a voice from God saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter does what? Yes, Lord? No, that is not what he does. He says, no, Lord, no. I've never eaten anything unclean. How many times have we said, no, Lord? No, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to forgive that person for that offense. It was too hard. It was too painful. I cannot do that. I'm not going to do it. And yet the Lord says, if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. Serious business. Jesus tells him that if he didn't, if he doesn't, he would have no part with him. Strong words, no share. You will not share with me, Peter, if you don't let me do this. It would seem that Peter sees the part, but not the whole. Peter's mind is only on what's happening right then. But Jesus is thinking about what's coming, too. This is just a preparation for it. So he makes this strong statement 
from one who does not own his own person. Do you realize that? You, you don't own yourself. Oh, we think we do. But if you're a believer here today, if you're a Christian, you don't own yourself. You can't just go off and just make any decision you want and do whatever you want. You belong to Christ. If indeed you're born again. So now I want to make a strong statement. Here's my strong statement. As I was looking at this, I was thinking about people who tell the Lord what He must do. And I thought about the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. I won't call it a gospel because it's not a gospel. This movement is doing exactly what Peter did, but with the purpose of purely earthly and wicked motivations. It seeks to tell God what He must do by taking Scripture and using it for selfish gain. The Lord will not be told what He must do or not do. For He knows best what we need. We can ask Him. We can request things of Him or from Him. But we must leave the end results within what He will grant to us and seek to be satisfied with, with the answers He gives. That's my strong statement. Don't be duped by these things. What Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, if I don't do this, you cannot join with me in my entire work of humiliation Foot washing was just a little part of it. He's saying, if I don't cleanse you from your sins, you will not share in my blessings, the blessings of my work of redemption. You will not belong to me, Peter. What a horrible thing to have to hear. So Peter, nor we could ever receive the fruits of salvation unless we embrace them by faith in the full work of Christ's life and death on the cross. His life is just as important as His death. For it was a perfect life. It was the life that we could not live. He lived it in our place. His death was the death that we should have had. And He experienced it in our place as, a sub, as our substitute. He is the one who shares everything He has. But we are the ones who must give up all that we have. He is the one who earned salvation, the, earned the salvation that He provides And it is ours through faith in His work, not ours. This is wonderfully brought out in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, which says, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So the suffering that we endure as Christians, whatever that suffering may be, is an indication that we have entered into the humiliation and the work of Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ. But this position of being a fellow heir is only possible for those who are washed by Christ. Peter had missed the meaning of Jesus' words and thought that he was talking about physical cleaning. He must have thought that the amount of washing would guarantee a greater amount of blessing. So, Not wanting to be excluded from Jesus' blessings, Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my 
my hands and my head. If you're gonna, if, if I'm gonna get the blessing, then I want it all. So Peter goes from one extreme to the other. But that was Peter, wasn't it? He was a shift changer. Always reacting, many times out of impulse or without knowledge and understanding. We see him in chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel asking to come to Jesus on the water. And Jesus said, come. He stepped out on the water and he began to walk to Jesus on top of the water. And then he looked around at his circumstances, the waves and the the deep, and he began to sink. Crying out for Jesus to rescue him. In Matthew 16, we just read, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. But as soon as Jesus begins to speak about his death, he rebukes him. And at the end of this chapter, in verse 37, he promises that he will never forsake Christ. That he will go with him even to death. And only a few hours later we see him denying him and saying that he never knew him. It is true that Peter has a track record that characterizes instability. But in the end, Peter became the solid leader that Jesus instructed him to be. Now notice in verses 10 and 11, Jesus said to him, One that is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Jesus teaches That what he means here is spiritual cleansing, not physical cleansing. This physical cleansing of their feet was only a picture of the spiritual cleansing that they would need every day as they walk with the Lord. The example he gives is clear. If If a person goes to the river or the lake to take a bath and they're clean... But walking home, their feet get dirty. They still need to wash their feet. We've been to the river. Christ has cleansed us with the flow of His blood. But we're not out of this body yet, and it still gets dirty. Our feet still get dirty. We need to have them cleansed. Jesus is saying that they are spiritually clean. They stand before God completely justified and clean. That's what justification does. It it speaks of our standing. As we stand before God, the judge of the universe, and He looks at us, He sees us having been cleansed by the blood of His Son, and He pronounces and declares that we are no longer guilty before Him. That's justification. This is what he speaks of, Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus saves us from himself. He's the judge. He will be the one bringing down the final verdicts of eternity. While in this body, so in justification, he looks at us and we're clean. But while we are in this body, as we go from day to day, we sin and that remaining sin gets us dirty and we need to be washed. How does that work? It's called sanctification. And that's why John writes in his first epistle, 
Turn with me to 1 John. He writes about the importance of constant cleansing. Constant cleansing. Look in verse 7 of chapter 1. 1 John 1, verse 7. Let's go through verse 9. He says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you see the word cleanses? It is a present tense verb. It means, what it's saying is, that as you walk through this life, the blood of Jesus Christ is constantly cleansing you from everyday sin which abides in your flesh. It is a constant thing. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Have you ever known anybody who thought that they had become sinlessly perfect? Oh, I've known several. They're deceived if they think that. He says in verse 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word cleanse in verse 9 is not the same tense verb as in verse 7. Verse 7 is a constant cleansing as you're going along and you sin and Christ's blood is cleansing you. In verse 9, it is a point point in time. When you realize that you've sinned and you come before God and you confess your sins and He forgives you. And then you go on about your life living for Him and walking with Him. This must have been a confusion for the disciples because they asked Him, If my brother sins against me seven times in a day, do I forgive him seven times? Now, seven times would be a lot for somebody to come to you in one day's time confessing that they had sinned against you. Jesus said, no. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. You ever tried to divide up how many times, how many minutes between times that would be in one day? That's what you and I need to do. Every time we realize we've sinned, every time we've been duped by Satan, every time that we have gone astray in heart or mind or deed, we need to come to, the, come to Christ and confess it, and He will forgive us every time. That's not an excuse to go and continue to sin. Certainly not. It's not a license to be able to sin and then be Absolved of it. But it is an avenue what He has made for us to continue to walk with Him and enter in and share with Him in what He has done. That's sanctification. It's the process of being made holy and living righteously as we walk with Christ. Now, I want you to notice the word you in verse 10. The word you in verse 10 is plural. He is not just speaking to Peter or singling him out. He is talking to all of the disciples. He is assuring them that he has cleansed them, but no sooner that he says that and breaks, says this to them, he breaks the news that not all of them are clean. MacArthur writes, As in all instances, so also here Jesus is not speaking about the physical, but the spiritual. He who in chapter 3 speaks about spiritual rebirth, 
In chapter 4, about spiritual water. And in chapter 6, about spiritual nourishment, which as he, which he as the bread of life provides, is here in verse 10 speaking about spiritual cleansing. It is the sharers. It is the sharers in his work who believe in him, who believe what he has done in their place. They are the ones who are the believing ones, trusting him as Lord and Savior, which comes from his life and his death on the cross. You see, they didn't understand all of that at this time. They couldn't. They couldn't fit it all together, but they would understand it in just a few days to come. Now, as far as Judas is concerned, Jesus knew all along that Judas would betray him. He knew it from the very first. And he knew that Judas was not spiritually clean. I've got to wonder... Sometimes you, I wonder, I don't know if you do, why Jesus didn't just address this earlier. Judas would have known also that he was, uh, he was the one that Jesus was speaking of. He, he had been planning this in his heart for some time. And Satan had also planted this in his heart. Jesus was not taken by surprise about Judas' treachery. He had already said in chapter 6, verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Strong words. Judas would have known that he was the one. Jesus was talking about. And yet Jesus let him remain. It had to be. You see, everything that happens here is a part of God's predetermined plan. And God was working it out to perfection. Why? Because the scriptures had already prophesied that these things would take place. Jesus had said earlier about Judas that his wicked act of betraying the Son of God laid clearly on Judas' shoulders. Judas was responsible for this sin. Listen to what he says. Matthew 26, verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man had not been born. Quite frankly, it would be better for anyone who rejects the gospel of Christ for their own sinful life on this earth, it would be better for anyone that they not be born. I'll tell you what a lot of this does. It, it, this, looking at this whole scene, it, it, it humbles me to think that I have been selected by God to, to take part in what Jesus did on that cross. That his cross is my cross. That his suffering is my suffering. That what they did to him, they can do to me because I follow him. I am not deserving of that. And neither are you. And yet, Christ has chosen us for that very purpose. That in us and in our life, in our sufferings, in our persecutions, in our 
heartaches and tragedies and disruptions, we can look to Him and say, Lord, You are worthy. I'm not worthy to suffer. And that's why we find in church history that Peter, when he was actually crucified, said, I, can't, I do not deserve to be crucified like my Lord was. Turn me upside down. Crucify me upside down. Is that how you see yourself this morning? Are you worthy? Or is He worthy? And you share. Be washed. Be washed every day as your Lord reaches into your heart, shows you your sin, confess it, and follow Him. Because His love is sure. It's everlasting. And even though on this day Jesus was reading, no doubt, the minds of His disciples, it says He loved them to the very end. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord, if you're not forgiven of your sins, you have violated God's law, Come to Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Fall on His mercy as a sinner. And find in Him forgiveness and life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Lord's Day. We thank You for uh, the blessings of this time, this time this morning as we've come to worship You. We thank You for... Uh, all that you are to us, and I pray, Lord, that you would use these words from John 13 to speak to our hearts, to convict us, to show us uh, who we are and who you are, uh, and how great you are in our lives, and uh, that we might glorify you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've stopped a bit early because I wanted to